with them your goodness, your mercy and grace. And so we want to lean on all those things right now as we look at your word. We want to hear from you. And so I pray that as folks leave today, they don't get the sense they've heard from the pastor, but that they had the Word of God expounded, explained, um, that they've gone into the Word and met with their Savior and heard His words there. I pray that that's what stands out to us as we spend this time in preaching. So, uh, bless our time together right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's late in the first century, and the ship is on the way, drawn by slaves, ready to make port, ready for the main port of the island. It's come from Ephesus, about 75 kilometers to the east on the coast of Asia Minor. Like most ships that are heading for Patmos, it's carrying prisoners. Now, not the rough you know, bad-looking prisoners, like, oh my goodness, you look like a prisoner. Not those kind of people. These are like the the good-looking prisoners. Because if you were like a, if you're a rough guy, you know, you're a murderer, you're a thief, Rome just kills you. They're not going to mess around with you, you know. But if you're a political prisoner, if, if there's something that you have done to insult the empire or the emperor, you're getting sent to Patmos. So, there's people there of, of different classes, but, but mostly you're talking about people uh, a little more well-off, more well-educated, prominent families. Patmos is a place of banishment where men spend their days working in the rock quarries, you know, working for Rome, hard labor. And while I don't know if this particular prisoner had to do that work, John, he was an old man. So maybe he wasn't doing the heavy labor thing. But he was certainly sleeping in damp, dark caves, spending his days there. They say uh, the story is told like this. On the way there, the waves were hitting the boat and the boat is rocking violently. One of the waves takes a person overboard. But then John raises his chained hands says a benediction over the sea, and the man's life is spared. They bring him back onto the boat. He's okay. That's how the story goes, at least. John arrives, and I imagine he's a little bit, I imagine a little bit depressed. I mean, you try sleeping in a cave. And he's thinking about the churches. Maybe he's thinking about Ephesus, where he has spent many, many years trying to build up and encourage the church. Ephesus, the home of the great temple to Artemis, worshipped by mandate of the Roman Empire. Also, the Roman Emperor worshipped by mandate. It's interesting, uh, this is a little historical footnote, but when, when an emperor would demand people worship him, Typically after that person died, the empire would say, no, he was not a god. But, but it's kind of funny that when an emperor did not demand worship and that emperor died, 
the empire would say, oh yes, he was a god. It's kind of interesting how that all worked out. If, if you if you were arrogant enough to demand worship as a god, after you died, people said, no, he was not. You know, kind of funny how that all worked out. But John was definitely in the category of having an emperor that demanded worship. And he was in a city where Artemis was worshipped. And so because of his testimony, because of his refusal to bow the knee, he was exiled to Patmos. Any of you ever been there? Have you ever been there to see it? I'm just curious. I know they take, yeah, some of you, okay. I know they do tours there. You, you can see the, the cave where they think John might, might have stayed. And it was on a Sunday, the Lord's Day it says, that John has a vision. He sees Jesus. And what Jesus has to say is written in the book of Revelation. Jesus speaks to seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven churches. And one of them being Ephesus where John was doing ministry at. And five of those seven churches, Jesus has hard words for the church. Two of the seven get nothing but encouragement and uh, good words from Christ. But five of the seven, there is a call to repentance. Now, fast forward about 1,500 years, October 31st, 1517, you have a young Catholic monk named Martin Luther, and he is, he is concerned about the Catholic Church, and he posts 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And number one says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4.17, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We are kicking off this new series on the Reformation. And I think it's, Appropriate that we start with a message on repentance. And I was listening to a sermon. I listen to different preachers um, so, so I can benefit myself. I, I can hear good preaching and, and I can grow and then I can, I can learn some different ways of, of doing things. Um, and I heard a message earlier this year by uh, John MacArthur and he asked a provocative question. He said, have you ever seen a church repent? And he wasn't talking about individuals. He was talking about the church, like a church. And I thought, I think I've heard of churches that have repented as a church, but I don't think I've ever been close enough to like re really know it well. I don't know. Like I I've been in churches that have had hard things happening where maybe large segments should repent. But I don't know that I've ever been in a church where the pastor said, we have to repent as a church. Like, we we did not do this right. Or we've let false teaching in here. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen that up close and personal. And that really grabbed my attention. And he was preaching on Revelation 2-3 through 3, when I was, as I was looking at that message. I thought, I just want to, I want to dig in there too. I want to, I want to study this and look at this because Jesus 
in five out of seven churches that Jesus is, is speaking to in Revelation 2-3, through three, um, He calls them to repent. Jesus calls His church. Now, we could talk about individuals repenting, and I think every sermon I've ever heard on repentance, except for one, has been individuals repenting. What about the church? Us, as a group? Is it possible we've gone astray somewhere? And I think that's what Martin Luther was getting at. I'm not going to do a lot of history of, of, of Reformation today. We'll, we'll, we'll mix some in as the weeks go on. But j- just as a, just a little introduction this morning. When Martin Luther posted that document on the door of, of the church in Wittenberg, I don't believe he was saying, I am sparking the Protestant Reformation. And, and, and he was nailing it up there. In fact, uh, this, I'm sorry, this took me back to my, my Moody days. Um, I remember on October 31st, um, you know, everybody's talking about Reformation, and, and that was the day that Martin Luther posted it. So w- one of my roommates was really into this, and he was like, I'm going to post Martin Luther's document like on our door in our dorm. That's what he said he was going to do, right? And so I said, if you do that, I'll like seeing a mighty fortress while you do it, okay? And we'll, we'll get this done right, you know? And so he did. He posted it, and I started singing. As soon as he closed the door, I stopped singing. And then he opened the door to see if I was still singing. And I said, I, I, yeah, I'm still, yeah, still going. Um, but um, in any case, sorry for the aside there. But, but my point being, I don't think Martin Luther was posting it to say, um, let's start a, a, a huge division here. Let's get this thing rolling. Protestant Reformation. I think he just wanted to reform the Catholic Church as they were selling indulgences, which could you, you could buy a piece of paper and you could release loved one's souls from purgatory because you bought a piece of paper, you know, which is really going to fund the building of, you know, cathedrals and things, you know. So um, he had an issue with that. And he was like, the church has got to repent. Well, as I look at the church today, the Church of America, the church around the world, but in particular the church in America because we're close to that, there's places I think we need to repent. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, I, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, if you have never read Revelation 2 to 3, this may be a little bit of a challenging message. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that off the bat. But um, read it on your own, but I'm just going to give you an overview. I'm going to do like a bird's eye view. Like, I love digging in. You know, you know me, I love digging into the text and even preaching on a couple of verses. But we're just going to do an overview here of Revelation 2 to 3. So if you turn there right now, last book of your Bibles. Kids, you got some new Bibles this morning. Time to take them for a test drive, right? Open those things up. You know what? There's certain things I think on the day we give these Bibles to the first graders, and it's like, I would never think to say this out loud, but in my mind I was looking at one of the Bible covers, and it was like uh, the, the fish. I think that was the Weaver's Bible, right? You know, the fishing Bible, you know? And I was like, that's the best Bible I've ever seen, you know? I would never think to say that normally, but that's the best Bible right there. I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Um, all right, so Christ's call to repent. When you go to Revelation 2 through 3, you've got seven churches, and I'm not going to read it all, but I just want to show you the kind of thing you're reading in this section. So Revelation chapter 2, and uh, looking at verse 5, this is to the Ephesus church, John's church. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. Or how about to Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 16. 
he says, therefore repent. If you keep moving forward, chapter 2, verse 21, he's talking about Jezebel, this person who is um, giving false teaching and promoting sexual immorality. And he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And then he talks about the people following Jezebel in, in later verse 22, unless they repent of her works. And then if you go to chapter 3, uh, verse 2, this is the church in Sardis. Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains and about to die, for I have found your works, uh, not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. And then later in chapter 3, in verse 19, Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove, reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So you get this impression that as Jesus is speaking to his church, he is calling them to change. Maybe change what they're teaching. Change how they're acting. He's calling them to repent. Now I'd like to explain that in three different ways for you. These are three observations about Revelation 2-3, through bird's eye view. Three observations. Number one, Jesus' word reveals the sins of the church. I want you to see some of the sins. So if you've got your Bible still open, Revelation 2-4, um, I just want to start listing the sins. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What's the problem there? The church doesn't have an on-fire love for Jesus. You've abandoned your first love. Now, what is the greatest commandment of all? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and the greatest. And Jesus says, you violated the greatest commandment of all. Everything else flows out of that. This is a big, it's not like, it's not like kind of like, yeah, I don't love Jesus very much today. You know, no, it's, it's like a big deal. Okay? Jump down to verse 14. In Pergamum, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Some of you there hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So there's two issues here. It's how you worship and it's sexual sin. Those two things. If you jump down to verse 20, Jesus says, But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So again, I see two problems here. It's a worship problem and it's a sexual sin problem here. If you jump down to chapter 3, Jesus says to the church in Sardis in verse uh, 1, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Well, How do you have a dead faith? Well, James says, faith without works is dead, right? Faith without works is dead. So Jesus says uh, in verse 2, I've not found your works complete. Faith without works is dead. That's a problem. And then finally in chapter uh, 3, verse 15, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. This is an apathetic church. We don't really care. Like we go through the religious motions but we're not really on fire for Christ. We're lukewarm. That's a huge problem. It makes God sick. 
when we play games with religious activities and we're not actually following Christ with a heart devoted to Him. Let me say a few things about this then. Um, Jesus' Word reveals the sins of the church. What do I mean by that? Well, I bet a lot of you have had the experience because this is a famous parenting strategy. Mom comes in the room and somehow she knows, she has intuition, somehow she knows, kids, that you've done something. And so she'll say something like this. Any one of you want to tell me what's going on? What'd you do? I know something happened. And, and, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, do I, do I tell her what I really did or should I lighten the story? You're the kid going, oh man, I, I can get out of this, right? Does mom really know what happened? Does she have eyes in the back of her head? I thought, you know, um, what is going on? But mom says, anything you want to tell me about? And she's kind of leaving you to confess your own sins. Now, I don't know if mom really knows because I'm not a woman, so I'm not sure I know the answer to that. But is it true, moms? Do you really know when you say that? You, you do know. Okay, okay, okay. But you're giving kids the opportunity to respond and say, yes, I did it. I'm searching my soul and I see it. Um, <laughs> I know it. I know what I did. Um, now, I love Revelation because Jesus is a little different here. Jesus comes at the church not like the mom does. But I, I love that, by the way. I love that strategy, by the way. But Jesus comes like, like this. I know what you did. I'm pointing it out and you need to stop. My word is telling you you need to stop. So, if a church preaches from the Bible and sticks to the Bible, they should be hearing where they're going off course. Unless they avoid those books or avoid the Bible, and then you should avoid that church. Right? Jesus makes it clear. This is what you're doing. If you will read my word, church, you will know where you're going off course. Unless you avoid those certain chapters and verses because you don't want to deal with them. And that's a huge problem. False teaching gets in there. So Jesus doesn't Jesus doesn't play any of these games. Like, what are you up to? He's like, this is what you're up to. My word says cut it out. This is wrong. Um, I often hear Christians in our culture, when we talk about big moral issues of the day, ethical issues of the day, I sometimes hear Christians, especially younger Christians, say, well, we need to have a convert. We need to have conversations about that. We need to talk about that as a church. And when I hear, I've heard that a lot. When I hear that, my main thought goes here. Yes, I'll have a conversation about it as long as the conversation centers around "Thus saith the Lord" and not how you feel about it today on a Monday. You know what I mean? I get the feeling that some Christians say. Let's have conversations about this sticky issue. And what they really mean is, let's put our opinions together and we'll figure this out. Instead of saying, what does the Word of God say? Because we have no other way of doing church other than what the Bible tells us to do. And if you want to recreate it and do it your own way, you're going to be one of those churches that Jesus rebukes. That's it. If you want to figure out a new way to do it, Jesus' words are harsh and they're for you. Um, I hope that's not our church, by the way, but I do recognize that people come from different places and come here, and maybe this is a word you need to think about for your church. Number two, um, this is like, I'm getting fire and brimstone, I'm getting my fire and brimstone on here, you know, so I'm like, man, right, all right, there we go. 
Uh, number two, Jesus' call contains a real threat. Like Jesus, you know, again, parenting 101, how hard is it for me? Like I, I can be like a marshmallow sometimes where I'm like, kids need to do this, and they don't do it. Then you're like, well, okay, let, 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 let's, let's change what I said there. No, no. Jesus says, this is how it is, and if you don't, I'm bringing the spanking, you know, like, like I, I'm doing this. You, you can't get out of this. There, there's a big, there's a timeout for the church, you know, like it's coming at you. Uh, look at, look at the threats here. I'm going to read them. Got your Bibles open. This is the, the, the Ephesus threat. This is chapter two, verse five. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you hear what he's saying there? I'm going to close your church down. If your church is a lighthouse in Ephesus, I'm snuffing the light. It's gone. You're going to be gone. I'm closing the doors of your church. You ever seen a church have to close its doors? One reason might be because Jesus closed the doors of that church. Right? you got to consider that at least. Later in chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus says, um, If not, this is verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16, If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of my mouth. Jesus like, I'm going to say words. Like, if you, if you hold the false teachings, I'm going to speak true words, and it's going to fight against your church. I mean, Jesus talks and worlds come into existence. Jesus speaks and he can shut down a church. He can shut down people. I'm just going to talk. It's going to happen. Moving on. Chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus says, Behold, I will throw her, that's Jezebel, the, the, the prophetess who's misleading people, onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Later in verse 23, I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Later on in verse uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know what hour I will come against you. I think the idea is, you as a church, you feel like everything's okay. We're doing so well as a church here. we got lots of people. Things are going really well. And Jesus is like, I'm coming like a thief, and I'm taking you out. I'm taking your church out. And you won't know what day it's going to happen. It's going to happen suddenly. You ever notice sometimes how quickly pastors and ministries fall? And it seems like overnight, one day they're being talked about really well, and the next day it's done. It's gone. That is the power of Christ on display for us. And then the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 16. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus like, you make me want to vomit. You make me sick. You're like lukewarm, nasty water, and I'm just going to spit it out. I'm going to spit you all out. Let me say this then. Number two. Jesus' call contains a threat. And I find this sobering because I would like to think that the church is the safest place for you to be. Like like you know when you like like you know it's a Christian joke that we tell sometimes, right? You know, like if, if someone's in church and uh let's say it's after church and someone says a swear word and, 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 and like you make the joke and you kind of back up like, oh I don't want to stand by you in case you get hit by the lightning bolt, right? You know? You've you made that joke, right? You know, like stand back, he just said something he shouldn't have said. Um 
we, we say that as a joke, but when a whole church is like that, or when a significant segment of the church is like, I'm not talking about swearing, by the way, but I mean like false teaching, sexual sin, uh, false worship, introducing things that are not biblical into the, into the church. When, when that, when those things happen, like we make the joke about the lightning bolt, but it's true. It's true. Like the threat is real. And what are you going to do? Um, I'll get to later what, what, what you might do. Um, Jesus is not okay with pastors who embezzle money, elders who abuse their power, members who infect the church with gossip and backbiting, churches that fight over insignificant things, churches that accept sexual sins of all kinds. I didn't say you love the sinner, love the sinner, but they accept sexual sin as a good thing. Churches that excel in entertainment over edification. Those churches might not be safe places. That's the word of Christ. Let me say this, though, because I know this brings up a sore place for some of you. Um, If the church has hurt you, pastor, elders, Jesus is not okay in some of those situations. Now, it takes some discernment. And I've sat down with people. And, I, and we've talked about past, and I was at this church in this city, and this happened, and I was there, and this was in my younger years, and this happened. And, and I've worked through some of that. And it takes some discernment to know, like, what part do I have to own of what happened back then? And what part could be, might be, the church making a decision that was not biblical, that was not based in grace and truth. And I'm not saying every church, every decision the church makes, some decisions the church makes are hard, and it's not their fault for having to make a hard decision, but sometimes people get hurt because the church has played politics, because it has been foolish in decision making. I've heard those stories too. And if you need to work through that, I'd love to sit down and help you work through that and talk. I have felt, when I hear about a pastor that has misused his authority, embezzled money, uh, committed sin against members of the church, whatever that is, I feel like that's like one of my people. Like I'm part of that category of pastor. And it hurts me. And I think that that's a, that's a good thing to help, to like enter into that and say, I'm sorry on behalf of those people that have hurt you. Because some of that should not have been at all. But I also want to help you own whatever part you had in the process as well. That's a good way to go through it. So there's a real threat here, and Jesus is not okay with churches that tickle the ears with feel-good messages all the time instead of talking about sin and salvation, and the gospel, and opening up a Bible. That's what we got to do. So, um, that's number two. And I see that in the Revelation churches. Jesus is very clear there. Number three, and my last observation, and we're going we're gonna to soften a little bit here. I love this. Think about this. Jesus knows how many are faithful in each of his churches. Like, he knows the number. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's outside the city? Right? And Abraham's like, please spare them, you know? And, and what, what if there's this number? What if there's that number? He, he keeps lowering the number. 
And God knows, like, how many are faithful within that city. Like, he knows the number. Check this out. I think you'll enjoy seeing this. I found this super encouraging to me. Chapter 2, verse 4. I'm Maybe this one's not encouraging, but we'll get to some that are. Chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. It sounds like he's talking to the whole group. The whole church in Ephesus, you have, you have abandoned your first love. But jump down now to chapter 2, verse 14. I have a few things against you. This is the church in Pergamum. You have some there. See the word some? Some there who hold the teachings of Balaam. Verse 15. You also have some who hold the teachings of Nicolaitan. So my feeling is there. There's a population of the church that's going astray, and there's some that are not. Praise God for the some that are not. Pray for the ones that are. Um, here's the next one. Uh, chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, Jesus is saying, you know, you, you tolerate Jezebel and some of you are committing adultery with her. Verse 24. But the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching. So he's like, there is a segment of you that are being faithful in Thyatira. Like, good job. Go to chapter 3, verse 4. I love this one. This is like a really great statement. Yet you, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. There's, there's a few. There's a, there's a small percentage of you, but you're faithful. Most of the church is not. I get the feeling in Sardis. And then again in chapter 3, verse uh, 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. And I get the impression he's talking about the church at large. Some people have even gone so far as to say, maybe Laodicea, maybe there were no true believers in that church at all. I tend to think it had believers. They were just apathetic. They were lukewarm. And they had some trouble coming unless they got hot and realized what a, what a mess they're in. That's my personal view. So let me say this. Number three, um, Jesus knows how many faithful are in his church. He knows his sheep. He knows the people that play at church politics. He knows the hypocrites. He always has hard words for them. He is the one who searches the heart. We're not fooling him by what we dress like coming into church, what we talk like. The reputation we have, it doesn't fool Jesus. Let's say, though, that you're one of the faithful few. I know a lot of you go to this church, and I hope we are not like going astray like that. I don't believe that we are. But let's say you come from a church where you are one of the faithful few, in a church that's compromising, in a church that doesn't maybe even open the Bible on a Sunday morning, but gives a talk. Um, you have a decision to make. And I talk to people about this with some regularity. What? Do I, I had a conversation last night about this, actually on the phone with somebody. Do I work to reform that church and help them repent? Or do I remove myself from that church? And that is the question you've got to wrestle with. Am I there to help reform it, to be part of the faithful few, and we can get this church back on track by the Spirit's power? Or is it time for me to say, I'm abandoning ship before the lightning bolt hits? I'm not sticking around for this. You've got to ask Jesus that. 
And if I could give you a personal pastoral opinion between you and me, if the church leaders, elders, pastor come to you and say, we don't want your reformation, we don't want you working against what we're doing as a church, in my opinion, typically at that point, you got to go. you got to go. If you're trying to work against the leadership of the church, you sit, shake the dust off your sandals and you go. Um, some of you, though, may decide to stay and try to reform it. But Jesus knows who you are. He knows the faithful ones. He knows the ones that are playing games. You can't fool them. So we're at the end here of this sermon. Um, and I wanted to give you a few reasons why we're studying the Reformation. Maybe you've already connected the dots in your own mind after a message like this. But why study the Reformation? Why should we do this? I want to give you three things to walk out with. Maybe one main, main point of application, but then three smaller ones. Um, Jesus' call to repent extends forward to us today, right? If you read these seven churches and we're going, Jesus has a word for us. He's talking to them, real churches in Asia Minor in the first century, but we read it and we go, oh, they were dealing with sexual sin. What are we dealing with in the church in America? A huge debate over what is sexual sin and what is not. It's right in our face. Same deal. Worship issues. False teaching issues. It's the same kind of stuff. Apathetic Christians. Hypocritical leaders. It's the same deal. We've got that in America. We study the Reformation because their issues are our issues. Can we put the three um, up that I had? Hopefully I gave those. Reformation issues are still relevant to the church today. What mode of baptism is legit? We've talking for that for 500 years. Um, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? We've been talking about that for a long time. Reformation recovered the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. One of the major doctrines of the evangelical church. Like you're not evangelical if you don't believe in justification by grace through faith. That was recovered in the 1500s. We're, we're going to look at that. Um, those issues are relevant to us today. Number two, uh, division in the church is now commonplace. I don't think, I'm going to say this again, I don't think Martin Luther was saying, let's divide the church. I can't wait to do that. He wanted to reform the church. But very quickly, the leaders of the Catholic Church said, we're not having it. And then he had to make a decision. What am I going to do now? And maybe one of the bitter fruits of the Reformation is we can church hop, we can split, you can take half the congregation here and half there. There's always a church down the road. Who needs commitment? And I think that's some of the bitter fruits of the Reformation. We'll take a look at that during this series and see maybe some of the negative impacts of the Reformation. We have to look unflinching at our past and not just, you know, put the heroes up there. Number three, Christ's call for repentance. I think I already said this maybe, but it's just as needed for us as it was in the 16th century. We need it today. we got to hear it today. I am hoping we will look at some issues from within the church and maybe even our church. Where are we going? What are we doing? Where might we be going astray? How can we return to biblical ideals? Like I say, I love this church and I have 
really only good thoughts about it. Um, but maybe in the process, Jesus will reveal some stuff to us as we go where we can be more faithful to his call. I pray for that. How faithful can we be? How on fire can we be? Are we holding on to our first love? I think that's true. But I want to keep looking at the mirror, holding up the mirror of the word and saying, where are we at here? Let me pray. Worship team, if you would come up um, and lead us in a final song. Father, we, uh, we are sobered by the words of Christ. We are sobered because I think we all know people who play at church and we all know leaders who have gone astray. And we don't celebrate that. We don't mock it. We, we look at it with a sense of fear and awe because You are the Savior, but You're also the Judge. And we recognize there can be an earthly judgment, an earthly judgment on your church. And you have the right to do that at any moment. Like it says, you can come like a thief and deal with things. Oh God, I thank you for where I see our church today. But I also know we've got to keep holding up the mirror of the word. We've got to keep looking in the mirror and seeing who we are, who you made us to be, and work by the power of your Spirit to get there. Help us see us for ourselves. Help us be a repenting church, a reforming church, a church centered on the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.